Hey, Not Past It listeners, it's that time again. This week, the historical domino effect is back. That's when we tell you a series of mini history stories that lead you through time in a chain reaction, and we'll end up in a completely different place from where we started. In the past, we've gone from a Nazi battle to a hit movie musical, a candy baron to the sexy green M&M, and today's journey, well, it might just rip your face off. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. I'm Simone Polanin. On today's episode, we're going back 180 years ago this week to August 29th, 1842, when an important treaty changed the geopolitical makeup of East Asia. And we'll snake our way through history and land in Hollywood's biggest night. The dominoes are all lined up, and we'll knock over the first one after the break. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. How are you doing today, Alyssa? I'm all right. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing okay. Doing okay. Um, I'm today, we are going on a winding journey from sea to shining sea. Okay, the seas aren't so shiny, but we will be traveling a bit. And embarking with me on today's history domino journey is Vox film critic and culture reporter, Alyssa Wilkinson. Thanks. It's great to be here. I imagine you watch a lot of movies or always watching movies. Yes, very uh, much. <laughs> curious, is there anything that you've seen lately that you've been really into? Well, August is a bit of a dead zone, but also this summer I've been thinking a lot about how many movies feel like they're maximalist. So like everything, everywhere, all at once, or even I think um, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis is a kind of broken movie, but it has its charms. And most of its charms are that it goes really hard. (laughs) And there's a lot of movies like that. I just like that. I think that's great. Nice, nice. Well, um, this may become relevant a little bit later in our journey. Okay. But first, you know, this is a history podcast. uh, So we are going to get into some history. Okay. Are you ready? I am ready. I love history. Let's go. Well, we're starting our journey with a major war between Great Britain and China. 
Before we get to that first domino, we need a little backstory on the relationship between these two countries. And for that, we're going to 1839 on the South China Sea. Ooh. So this war between China and Great Britain, it's a naval war with cannons, men falling overboard. Hmm. Um, and part of why they're fighting is because of trade. And there's one Chinese commodity in particular that Britain cannot get enough of. Now, Alyssa, what do you think that could be? Oh. And I'll give you a clue. It's something they both have in common. I mean, the answer that springs to mind immediately is tea. <laughs> Was it tea? That is correct, yes. Okay, good. It's all about tea. The British are known for loving their cuppa. Mm -hmm. uh, they're also after silk and porcelain. Um, so this war is happening in the early 1800s, and for the past 200 years, Great Britain had been growing their empire with colonies like India, uh, the Pacific Islands, the so-called New World. So, you know, they're, they're used to being the big guys on top, so to speak. But when it came to trade with China, that actually wasn't the case. So China had become a booming agricultural economy— and one of their major cash crops was, like we said, tea. And they knew how valuable that tea was. They would pretty much only accept silver in exchange for it. Um, and they would only let Westerners trade into one port. Hmm. So China's in this position of power when it comes to trade. So it was really expensive for the British to buy tea and other goods from China. In the 1700s, British merchants try to come up with you know, like a, a clever way to make some cash. Um, and clever is in very heavy quotes here. Uh, they needed something that would make the Chinese dependent on them. Hmm. Something that would flip the switch back in their favor. So British traders started selling a product of their own to China. Now, do you have an inkling as to what that may be? Hmm. And now remember, Great Britain has an entire empire at their disposal, if that's any clue. Goodness. Gosh, I don't know. I don't even know what you would, what would you sell? Mm. I'm, I'm coming, uh, everything that's running through my head is a, is a British food that I know can't be right. <laughs> <laughs> clotted, clotted cream. <laughs> yeah, they got the Chinese hooked on clotted cream. <laughs> I mean, it's good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. Their product that they start pushing in China is opium. Oh, well, yeah. A, a little more addictive okay. than clotted cream, perhaps. Yeah, that, that you can get hooked on that. <laughs> yeah, so, so Britain starts smuggling opium grown in India to China. Right. Um, and Great Britain, as a result, starts raking in the profits. So it's kind of like an addiction trade, you know, opium mm -hmm. for tea. <laughs> Similar levels of <laughs> Yeah, yeah. On the same level, yeah. <laughs> now, obviously, China is not on board with this. And this tension escalates, which brings us back to the South China Sea, where British and Chinese ships are battling it out. And this war becomes known as the First Opium War. It lasted three years and saw Great Britain occupy the major city of Nanjing and destroy several Chinese forts and ships. The British, powered by their steamships and their superior technology, they easily beat the Chinese. 
Some 20,000 Chinese soldiers were killed or wounded, while the British only had a couple hundred casualties. Oof. So it's, you know, it's very uneven. Very lopsided. Um, and the war ultimately comes to an end in 1842 when Chinese and British officials sign a resolution treaty called the Treaty of Nanjing. Okay. Now you know the deal between Great Britain and China. And that brings us to our first domino. All right, so on August 29th, 1842, 180 years ago this week, China signs the Treaty of Nanjing. And this treaty has a couple of shocking elements. Britain made China pay reparations. They also made China open up multiple ports to Western trade that had previously been closed, again, trying to reverse this balance of power in their trade relationship. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, all the control that China once had, they lose that. But most importantly for this story, the treaty mandated that China hand over one important island to the British as a colony. Right. You think you know which one that was? Yeah. This is Hong Kong, right? Sure is. Yep. The British arrived on its shores during the war and decided to take it for themselves. So Great Britain now has Hong Kong, and it establishes a colonial government to run the island. And it may not come as a surprise, but the colonial government isn't doing much for the Chinese and indigenous populations in Hong Kong. So the non-British locals had to establish their own support systems, things like protection, resources, jobs. And to do that, they turned to a long-standing Chinese tradition. So in mainland China, going back hundreds of years, there had been these secret societies or mutual aid associations, you know, like groups of families or neighborhoods that would band together, you know, to offer social and economic support to each other. And back then, they were called triads. Alyssa, is that term familiar to you? I mean, I usually think of that as just three things together. So not in this context, I guess. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Well, let me tell you what the triads in Hong Kong were all about. So in the late 1800s, while Hong Kong was developing into this Western city under British rule, um, triads stepped in to fill the void that the cops and the colonial government left. And one of the big things these triads were doing is they helped people find jobs. So, for example, this one triad called Yi An was acting like a labor union, you know, collecting fees, making sure people got paid, that sort of thing. Uh, but while triads were helping citizens of Hong Kong find jobs, they were also doing this other thing to make money. Now, if you were in this position, what do you think you would turn to? You know, what new lines of revenue are you going to open up? Hmm. I'm thinking right now about uh, all the organized crime movies I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, what are they what are they doing? They're doing uh, illegal trade. They're providing protection. They're maybe helping people get work or all of those kinds of things. Yeah, you are so on point. That is exactly right. <laughs> movies have treated me well. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, the triads, they start to get a little riskier. They um, go from these, like, neighborhood organizations to organize crime, dabble in drugs, prostitution, racketeering, you know, the greatest hits. Greatest hits. 
<laughs> the thing is, the British colonial police force, they're aware of what's going on with the triads. The police just aren't very effective. They're more concerned about other stuff, like, you know, protecting free trade for the British. Um, however, every once in a while, they would arrest a drug dealer or the head of a brothel to sort of keep up appearances. Hmm. Um, which brings us to our second domino. So one triad member that gets targeted by the British colonial police is this guy named Ng Sik Ho. But people in Hong Kong called him Limpy Ho or Crippled Ho. Okay. Yeah, not uh, <laughs> particularly PC, but... <laughs> no, but descriptive. <laughs> yeah, descriptive. Very much, very specific. The name, he got the name because he walked with a limp after getting injured in a street fight as a teenager. So this is, yeah, real tough guy stuff. Okay. Um, and Limpy's, you know, doing crimes, selling heroin, uh, a bit of a callback to the opium. Um, and he's having run-ins with the cops. Now, at, at this point, the relationship between the triads and the colonial police has been entrenched in Hong Kong for decades. And in 1960, Limpy gets arrested. But once he gets out of jail, his drug dealing operation gets even bigger. Okay. He joined forces with another triad guy, and the two of them established a new, very successful heroin operation. Cash started really flowing in. You know, Limpy Ho rose to the top, and eventually he became one of the most notorious triad bosses in Hong Kong's history. Hmm, okay. Yeah, um, doing quite well for himself. People speculate he was in control of over 1,000 foot soldiers. Huh. Um, and he was making a ton of money. Today's equivalent of around 250 million US dollars a year. Mm. Um, you know, he invested in a bunch of real estate, hotels, that kind of thing. You know, you can kind of imagine this guy walking around Hong Kong with a big stack of cash in his pocket, kind of like. <laughs> Bulging. You know, an edgy Mr. Monopoly mm -hmm. vibe. <laughs> However, he did not get to keep all of the money that he made because there were important people he had to pay to make his business run. Do you have any idea as to who Limpy Ho might have had to pay? I mean, if I were guessing, I would say probably the police, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was. Certainly okay. it was the cops. Mm -hmm. Yep. Cops and mobsters, mm -hmm. never too far apart, it seems. Nope. Uh, the relationships between the triad members and cops were notoriously close, especially with the rank-and-file officers, many of whom were Hong Kong locals, by the way. Hmm. Um, and, you know, Limpy Ho, giant triad boss that he was, he paid kickbacks to one policeman in particular whose name was Lee Locke. Okay. Yeah, so... Uh, Lee, he was a Chinese staff sergeant in Hong Kong. Uh, he had risen through the ranks really quickly. Um, he was even awarded the Colonial Police Medal from Queen Elizabeth herself. <laughs> so prominent, prominent dude in the police force. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. However, you know, he's there looking like the shining star of the police. Meanwhile, he's actually controlling divisions of triad gangs and running major swaths of Hong Kong. He's forcing gangs to pay him kickbacks for every business that they open up. So, you know, the infamous 
Limpy Ho is actually kind of under the thumb of Lee Locke. Mm. Limpy Ho had to pay Lee $1,200 a day to run his drug stall. Yikes. <laughs> this is like the Sopranos ratcheted up to 112. <laughs> seriously, seriously. Shit runs downhill, money goes up. It's that simple. And, you know, it's not just Limpy that's on the hook. Lee has basically, like, every mobster, drug dealer paying him these kickbacks. So cops and triads are basically getting rich off of each other. Mm-hmm. But the wealth flowing into their hands did not trickle down. Now, there were dramatic class disparities in Hong Kong at the time. The rich were very rich. The poor were very poor. There were slums throughout the city. And in 1953, one of these slums burned down in a massive fire. It displaced close to 6,000 people. And this fire would make a big impression on one little kid in particular, who would grow up to change Hong Kong's relationship with the rest of the world in a big way. Uh-huh. And we will get to that after the break. Welcome back. Vox film critic and culture reporter Alyssa Wilkinson and I have just made our way from the signing of the Treaty of Nanjing in 1842 to the underhanded dealings between the triads and the cops in the 1960s. All right, so Alyssa, if you remember when we left off, all this crime and corruption meant that Hong Kong was dealing with widespread poverty. And when a massive fire in the slums left thousands on the streets, there was one kid who was left homeless for the next year of his life. He grew up in the 1950s and 60s, witnessing this triad violence, and it stuck with him. It ended up shaping his career path as a huge movie director in Hong Kong and in the U.S. And that takes us to domino number three. Alyssa, do you know who that person might have been? This is where my my knowledge tends to break down. There's a there's a lot of interesting directors from that region, but I uh, I would love to know who it was specifically. Sure. So that kid grew up to become the famous filmmaker John Woo. Of course, of course, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he started directing movies in the late 60s. Um, Alyssa, how familiar are you with John Woo's work? Well, uh, with his American or his Hollywood work, I, you know, obviously I've seen, um, <laughs> I mean, who, who hasn't seen Face Off, right? Um, <laughs> but I haven't delved into a lot of his work from Hong Kong. But, I, you know, obviously he's the most famous. He's the one that people think of. Yeah, Face Off, truly a classic. Yeah, I mean, that is cinema right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we are we are getting there. We will unpack Face Off. <laughs> but pre-Face Off, um, you know, Wu's career as a director really took off in Hong Kong in the mid-80s. In, in 1986, he released a movie called A Better Tomorrow. And this would be the blueprint for the triad film genre. Mm-hmm. The movie is full of all of these, like, crazy, drawn-out gunfights. Um, And that became his trademark. Intense, long action scenes that are as choreographed as a Broadway musical and as high emotion as any good mob film. 
And actually, one of John Woo's most famous setups is kind of like that Spider-Man meme where Mm -hmm. each guy is pointing a gun at someone and each guy also has a gun pointed at them. He does that in a bunch of his movies, specifically Face Off and The Killer. Mm -hmm. And fun fact, John Woo's style ended up inspiring a lot of Hollywood directors, most notably Quentin Tarantino. Huge fan. I mean, you see it all all over his work. Uh Okay, so... After John Woo directed A Better Tomorrow, his name was on the map. He was doing his thing, and one of his biggest blockbusters came out in 1997. It's an American movie with perhaps one of the greatest story premises of all time. We've kind of covered this already, but do you know which movie I'm talking about? This must be Face Off. It sure (laughs) is. Face Off. A bananas film (laughs) with a bananas premise. (laughs) Yes, yes. And that takes us to domino number four. Now, it seems like you are a fan of the movie. How would you, for somebody who's never seen it before, how would you describe what Face Off is about? Gosh, I mean, the thing that sticks in my head is that there are face transplants (laughs) that are going on as kind of a method of like, subterfuge and revenge Um, and it's Nick Cage and John Travolta which is just like a pairing for the ages and you know there's sort of this moment where someone says you know I'm just gonna take his face off and so you always know you're watching a good movie when someone says the title of the movie (laughs) in the movie I'd like to take his his face off but the fact that this is accompanied by Face transplant procedures is just, it's just a chef's kiss. It's a its a great, great bananas movie to watch. Yeah. Well, that's like a perfect description. <laughs> I mean, who cares about the details, right? <laughs> that's beside the point. It's the, we're here for the faces. I've been uh, chasing this guy ever since I joined the force. And now after all this time, I finally figured out a way to trap him. I will become him. Yeah, so that is uh, incredible line reading there from John Travolta. <laughs> iconic, um, iconic role. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, just to cover the plot a little bit, the movie begins with John Travolta as a good FBI agent and Nicolas Cage as a sociopathic murderer. And as you said, they switch identities and also their literal faces. As you do. <laughs> yeah, as one does uh, to exact revenge. It's like Freaky Friday, yeah. basically, right? Just same, a nice, same idea. Yeah. Good grounded <laughs> storytelling. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we said John Woo was this really influential director, uh, you know, kind of like the godfather of this triad genre. Um, and when Face Off comes out, even though it's an American film, it has a really big impact on Hong Kong cinema. So much so that two directors from Hong Kong, Alan Mack and Andrew Lau, decide to make their own movie inspired by Face Off. Oh, good. (laughs) Yeah. A bit more realistic. Uh, It doesn't have the face transplants. Um, I know. Not quite so exciting. Uh, This movie came out in 2002. It was a little less well-known in the U.S. Yep. It was Infernal Infernal Affairs. Affairs. Yep. Mm -hmm. A great film, actually. Really, really spectacular film. Yeah. It sort of follows a similar idea to Face Off, 
the cop and mobster identities are intertwined. Mm -hmm. There's an undercover cop who infiltrates the mob and a high-ranking cop who's actually a mobster, and they're hunting each other for the entire movie. Now, this film also does incredibly well. It won the best film at the Hong Kong Film Awards and even gained an international audience. Um, It did so well that Brad Pitt, the Brad Pitt, (laughs) and his production company, they buy the rights to Infernal Affairs so that they can make the Hollywood remake. Mm -hmm. Which they do. They move forward with creating the American version of Infernal Affairs. And do you know what that movie ended up being called? I sure do. That is the 2006 movie The Departed, directed by Martin Scorsese. Yes. Which I think I saw before I saw Infernal Affairs, but I I certainly enjoyed both of them greatly. Yeah, The Departed. The Departed. Mm -hmm. Classic. Um, And that brings us to our fifth and final domino. You got something you want to ask me? How, I guess, how recently have you seen The Departed? Yeah, so, I mean, I think I saw it when it came out, and then I'm not sure I've actually watched it again since, but um, it sort of has this same setup, but we've got Leo DiCaprio, and we've got, you know, Mark Wahlberg and Matt Damon, and my family is all from South Boston, and so one thing that has always stuck in my head is there's a scene where Jack Nicholson's in a back room at a bar, you know, at a bar with um, <laughs> with some other guys, and he, he breaks a guy's arm that's in a cast over a pool table to kind of make a point. He, you know, he's the mob boss, and on the wall is a sign that says Dorchester or Dorchester just uh, if you're from there. And uh, I remember seeing it and saying, my grandpa grew up there. (laughs) And so (laughs) it feels like family. But the movie did super, super well, won a bunch of Oscars, you know, and a ton of other awards. And I think it kind of rehabilitated for a lot of people, certainly Wahlberg as an actor and and maybe DiCaprio in some ways, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So as somebody who is from Boston, do you feel like, do they get it right? How's the Boston representation? Well, so it's, you know, it's all my family that's from Boston. I ne- I have never lived there. But according to my dad's twin brother, who is a welder and worked on the big dig, um, yes, it is exactly what he knows um, from growing up. I think the only piece that uh, they pointed to as deeply unrealistic is that Jack Nicholson refuses to wear a Red Sox hat throughout. But other than that, we're in the right area. Gotcha. Not enough Red Sox uh, representation. Well, yeah, you know, you mentioned uh, some of the big names attached to the film. Leonardo DiCaprio, Mark Wahlberg. Jack Nicholson plays the big, scary mob boss. Mm -hmm. Matt Damon, a young Matt Damon is in it. Mm -hmm. However, probably the biggest name Uh, you've mentioned him before, is the director on the movie, Martin Scorsese. Mm -hmm. And this is the movie that wins Marty his first uh, Best Director, uh, first and only Best Director Oscar. First and only Best Director somehow. (laughs) Wild. I know, right? (laughs) Probably the best American director alive, but, you know, that's how the Oscars go. (laughs) We will get to that. We will certainly get to that. (laughs) Um, One of the directors of Infernal Affairs, Andrew Lau, actually commented on The Departed. This is what he said. Of course, I think the version I made is better, but the Hollywood version is pretty good, too. Scorsese made the Hollywood version more attuned to American culture, which um, 
I don't know about you, but to me, that sounds like a very tactful way to be like, yeah, Americans have bad taste. Backhanded compliment. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, that's true. I mean, yeah, I mean, not disagreeing, uh, unfortunately. (laughs) Sure. Well, you know, I won't give away any spoilers for our audience, but it is worth noting that in some key parts, The Departed is almost a scene-for-scene remake of Infernal Affairs. So... You know, you could argue that it is sort of a whitewashing of the original. Yeah. Which brings us to a topic that you have covered quite a bit as it relates to the Oscars and the Academy. Mm -hmm. You know, the Academy has been criticized for having quite a narrow perspective on film. You know, one that is reflective of a predominantly white American audience, a predominantly white voting body. Yep. And, you know, sometimes just blatantly ignoring or disregarding filmmakers of color or non-American filmmakers. Yep. And one really egregious example of this was at the award show, The Year the Departed won, uh, there was this moment when the announcer said, who won Best Adapted Screenplay? And they got one very important detail very wrong. I'm going to play you a clip and let's see if you can catch the error. And the Oscar goes to... William Monaghan for The Departed. William Monaghan based his screenplay about Boston mobsters on the Japanese film Infernal Affairs. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, so you had, a, you had an immediate reaction to that. Oh, no. That's also probably pre-recorded, so they really, they really botched that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, pretty bad. Not yeah. subtle mistake at all. No. So yeah, they call they call Infernal Affairs movie with Hong Kong all over it. They call it Japanese. Oof. Yeah. Wow. And you know, this feels related more broadly to the way that the Oscars deal with international films in general. Yes. I mean, for example, like what used to be called the foreign language film category is now the international film category. But mm-hmm. so that's a slight change. But yeah. But they haven't actually changed the um, requirements. No, <laughs> they haven't. And the category is a mess. I mean, it, you know. Yeah. Should I explain briefly how it works? Please, yeah. You've, you've covered this a lot, so I'm curious. Yeah, what's your take on it? So, okay. So, formerly foreign language, I believe two years ago, it was changed to international because there's a lot of problems with the designation of a foreign language film. Um, the way a movie can be nominated in that category is that... According to Academy Rules, every country gets to decide who its nominating body is, and then they get to pick a film that they want to be their entry at the Academy Awards. That means you'll never have two films from Hong Kong in the category because they can only pick one. So this means essentially that a lot of films never get recognized, right, because some other film got picked in its place. And there's lots of examples of this where... You know, maybe a filmmaker has curried favor with the nominating body in their country and the obviously better film (laughs) is just not going to be nominated. And then there's this long list and then the Academy voters kind of winnow it down to five and then pick among the five. And for a long time, European films had the edge there. I, I think films from Africa almost never make it into that from any African country. So we get this distorted idea of what global cinema is. On top of it, if a film is nominated in that category, it's very, very hard for it to be nominated in other categories. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I've, I've always wondered, you know, even before the name change about, 
you know, foreign film, international film, that category, because like, I don't know, you see films from England or Australia get nominated in other categories sometimes. So it's like, what is a foreign film? Is it is it the country it's from? Is it the language? Um, I don't know. It just doesn't feel consistent. Yeah. And there, there's other issues. There are rules um, around how much of your film needs to not be in English to qualify for the category. And there was an example a few years ago where this became a big problem because the official language of Nigeria is English. And the film that Nigeria picked to represent it was in English and it was disqualified from the category even though it was a Nigerian film, you know, it's just sort of like oddly, there's like all this colonialist baggage um, that happens. Mm. The Oscars are almost 100 years old now, and they're like deeply provincial when you look into it. Yeah. It, these things take time, sure, but it really comes down to do the Oscars want to be about all movies, mm -hmm. <laughs> rewarding all movies, which it seems like they kind of do, or are they purely about American film, in which case, what are we doing with these categories? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe the Oscars just need a dramatic makeover. Mm -hmm. You know, it's time. Get it together, y'all. Well, Alyssa, we have come to the end of our domino journey. It has been a long and winding road from British political colonialism in China to American cultural colonialism in Hollywood. You know, illegal opium trade, corrupt police force, organized crime, faux pas at the Oscars. All of it can be traced back to some real white guy strong arming, <laughs> strong arming and then playing dumb. Mm -hmm. And and addictive substances, which, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and addictive substances. Mm -hmm. I am addicted to face-off, so I think it tracks uh, that, <laughs> across the episode. That's, that's a good thing to be addicted to, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> this has been totally fascinating. Um, now I'm going to be thinking about this the next time I watch The Departed. Yeah, yeah. I'll have the opium wars in the back <laughs> of your head. Yeah. Sounds great. Cool. <laughs> Thank you so much for Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Naomi Bronner. Next week, I'm making a play for the game show host chair in a brand new, very special Not Past It trivia edition. God, these questions are hard. We told you we were dumb, right? Like, we don't know things. <laughs> like, don't, like, wh why are these, like, difficult? <laughs> we got them both. Yeah, but, like, we got them both. <laughs> The rest of our team are associate producers Julie Carley and Ramoy Phillip. Laura Newcomb is our production assistant. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Katie Feather and Andrea B. Scott. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Sound design and mixing by Emma Munger. Original music by Sax Kicks Ave, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co. With music supervision by Liz Fulton. Technical direction by Zach Schmidt. Show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Matt Schiltz. Special thanks to Philip Tai, Derek Lamb, and to Lydia Polgreen, Abby Ruzica, Dan Behar, Jen Han, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, Ella Walsh, and Joshua Bianchi. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. And while you're there, hey, why don't you rate us five stars? You can follow me on Twitter, at Simone Palanen. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week.
The story is that he insisted on wearing a Yankees hat on set, but they obviously can't have a Boston mobster wearing a Yankees hat, so he took it off. (laughs) Wow. Wow, that's so interesting. I did not know that. 